The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Twenty years, Nassim Haramein has directed research teams of physicists, electrical engineers, mathematicians, and other scientists. He's founded a non-profit organization, the Resonance Project, where, as the director of research, he continues exploring unification principles and their implications in our world today. The foundation is actively developing a research park on the island of Hawaii, where science sustainability and green technology come together. His lifelong journey into the geometry of space-time has led to a coherent understanding of the fundamental structure of our universe. He joins me today on In Discussion in this two-part series. Nassim Haramein, welcome to In Discussion for this first in two programs. It's a great privilege to share this journey with you. Thank you. It's great to be there. Um, I'm glad we get to connect. As am I. I'm fascinated with your work and listened with great interest to your DVD series, and I'm sure there are certainly new ideas that we'll cover since those were created. As with all my guests, Nassim, I would like for our listeners to return to your early days, if I may, talking to your childhood, um, the academia, and fundamentally, uh, during the course of the programs, the Resonance Project that you founded, and covering the the many uh, theories, uh, including among many, of course, the Torkin Coriolis effect, Einstein's field equations, etc. Traveling uh, to your work presently. So with all that said, can I begin with your childhood? So well described by yourself in your DVDs. Starting around the age of five or six years old, perhaps? Yes. um, Well, um, uh, there was a bunch of different 
events that started my, me on my path of exploring the structure of space-time and, and, you know, the foundation of reality. And um, I was an inquisitive uh, young one. Um, I was very interested in nature. Uh, I spent a lot of time. I was a lonely kid. I didn't fit in so well, uh, partly because I was uh, from a different um, uh, country uh, the, than the country I was in. I was in Canada early on, and, um, you know, I had a strange name and um, a strange uh, skin color. And, um, you know, so I was a little bit isolated, and I spent a lot of time observing nature, um, you know, alone in the garden, looking at the bees and the flowers and uh, the trees and the root systems and all this. And I, um, I had a lot of uh, sense of communion with, with nature, and I had a whole world uh, of um you know, uh, a whole discussion and a whole world going on in my in my field, in my head, in my mind, and in my in my uh, being as a whole. And um, that world typically clashed with the with um, the world around me. And uh, so, as a result, uh, I wasn't doing very well at school. I was very I was not very attentive. And um, I was, uh, I tend to be daydreaming a lot the way people think of it that way. I was thinking about many other things and not paying much attention to the, to the teacher. Um, and so, but I had all sorts of very interesting esoteric experiences very early on. Did you realize that you were going to move into science at that time? but that perhaps it wasn't going to be into the traditional scientific establishment. Did you know then that you were going to take a, a fork in the road, I suppose, and somewhat move away from the conventional theories that you had been exposed to or were knowledgeable to? Uh, no, I, I certainly didn't have it um, that well-defined uh, at all. I, all I knew is that I obviously thought differently than the people around me. I experienced the world differently than the people around me. And, um, you know, I didn't even know what science was or, you know... Uh, uh, I didn't necessarily think of uh, my exploration of the nature of reality, uh, you know, as um, scientific or or any which way. I was just uh, I was just being me, and uh, and I was fascinated. I, I really, really was fascinated with. Um, you know, it just wasn't obvious that all of a sudden I just showed up here on this planet and that I was conscious and that I could observe myself and that I could observe things. And I just did, I wanted to know how that all worked. And I wanted to know what is this experience? It's, I just couldn't, I just couldn't go with the experience and, and, and make like it was all normal. To me, something extraordinary was happening and I wanted to know what it was. And I, I, you know, all the questions I asked, um, 
you know, the adults, the, the answers I was getting were unsatisfactory. And, you know, I think that if I would have been a young child in the school system today, I would have probably got categorized with, um, you know, attention deficit disorder and all sorts of things and maybe even put on various um, uh, drugs to, you know, to uh, bring my attention back to the school system and so on. Um, but um, at the time, luckily, um, you know, the, that was not permitted and there wasn't such things. Although my father is a child psychologist or was a child psychologist, a fairly famous one. He was right hand of uh, Piaget, the founder of uh, child development systems, and uh, worked uh, in Geneva very closely with Piaget for years and then moved to the University of Montreal, and that's how I ended up being in Canada. And so my father was intrigued with me and, and you know, certainly was trying to explore how my mind was working and and why I was having so much difficulties in the standard educational system. But um, with great frustration, it was very hard for him uh, to see me struggle and, um, and have so much difficulty integrating. So I, I really didn't know it was about science. I really didn't have a label on what I was exploring. But all I wanted to know is how this all works. How did I get here? What is this reality around me? And why am I able to have self-awareness? How, I, how is it that I'm able to observe it and, and analyze it and, and interact with it in some ways? When you're growing up, in nature, as I did, I remember growing up near Stonehenge and clearly feeling different, I suppose, in some way to children around me. You grow learning more about the planet, the, the vibration, the heart. As you yourself, Nassim, look back at that time in nature, was there any particular event that took you from what I call this ordinary world into a special world? Uh, there, was a, there was a bunch of them, but I think the one that led me uh, most directly to the physics I'm writing now um, was, um, was the, uh, the lesson I got in dimensions. Uh, when I was about nine years old or ten years old, when my my teacher went to the front of the class and told us we were going to learn about dimensions, and that it was the first lesson in geometry. And uh, when he said that, I was very intrigued because in my own exploration, what I had found by observing nature and, and spending time alone, walking back from school and, and sitting uh, in contemplation, was that they seem to be patterns in nature. And, you know, I thought of these patterns of various scales of dimensions, you could call them. I didn't necessarily call them dimensions at that time, but I had a whole scheme of... Um, of interpretation of what I was seeing. For instance, I used to live uh, close to 
um, a movie theater, and I, I would sit on a bench. There was a bench right in front of the entrance, and I would sit on the bench and wait for people to come out, and um, and just look at the people coming out of the movie theater after the movie, and and uh, notice the way they walk, the way they talk to each other, uh, their hair color and their features and all this. And I, I would, I would kind of classify and find patterns of like, you know, almost like a family of uh, features uh, of people that that had like similar features, and then another family and another family. And I was looking at patterns like this in nature. And so when the teacher said that, I thought he was going to start talking about all this. And I was really excited. But then I got really, really disappointed because it wasn't that at all. This was something that I was particularly taken with in your DVD series, where you sat there as a youngster listening to this lecturer talking about this dot. And it was presenting great difficulty in convincing you of its real properties, or, or I suspect in this case, not. And clearly from the beginning in these formative years, did you find yourself becoming a maverick, enabled to see those false doctrines, that type of teaching in so much uh, that it was archaic? Uh, yes, I definitely didn't think of it as uh, being a maverick, and, and certainly the adults around me didn't think of me as being a maverick, neither. Well, you know, in fact, they thought for a period of time that I, I might have uh, mental disabilities uh, until, you know, my father uh, executed, uh, uh, got some of his uh, PhD students to, to do some you know, IQ test on me, and and I was shown to you know be uh, way above average. But that you know, um, definitely, I was a. It was seen, and I was experiencing it. You know, it, certainly from the outside, it was seen as a problem. It was seen as a, I was a problem child. Um, you know, I, uh, many teachers told me many, many times that I wasn't going to amount to anything, that I was, uh, I was probably going to be a bum, and I'm, uh, you know, and that uh, it was going to be, you know, I was going to have a terrible life, and uh, and so it was very discouraging. It was a little confusing because, from my point of view, it was the system I was embedded in that wasn't catering to what I was excited about. And, it, 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 you know, uh, from my point of view, um, it was um, on their end that they were missing something. Um, and and they, they weren't getting me. And I couldn't get anybody to get me. And it was really frustrating. Um, I, had, I had to go out of, of the school class every day and, and go and sit with a psychologist for many um, of the school years, you know, at least an hour a day, or, or go and see a psychologist after school. And even the, the psychologists, many of them were ex-students of my father, or they were, um, you know, uh, doing their PhD thesis um, with my father, and so on. And, um, you know, even 
many of them didn't get me. And actually, uh, interestingly, just recently, I think five years ago, one of the psychiatrists, psychologists that uh, uh, was doing her PhD in child psychology at the time was one of the people that examined me when I was seven. And, and, um, and she came... Um, Recently, um, I was visiting my father five years ago or so, and uh, she came to the house and she apologized for not being completely honest in her report when she reported back uh, to my father about her examining uh, my case and so on, um, because she felt there was something so much deeper, uh, there was such a... Uh, a greater, um, you know, a deeper uh, knowledge that I was that I was conveying, and it was so overwhelming to her. Uh, I remember very clearly that session. I I talked to her about the universe, and I talked to her about what I was experiencing, and all this in very clear terms, and all this. And she just didn't know what to do with that. She didn't know how to put that in a report. She didn't know how to describe that, and so she she omitted all. All that in her report to my father, and and she actually came to my house, to my father's house, and and when I was visiting, and apologized for having done that, for not having been completely honest in her reporting. So it was, you know, it was definitely difficult at the time. It was difficult for my parents. It was difficult for me. And uh, and I I I just I just hope if there's parents out there that are listening to this that have children with these type of difficulties that maybe this can help them understand a little bit better that maybe maybe the child is having a whole experience that's very valid that that just doesn't fit very well in the standard educational system. This is interesting. It reminds me of Einstein's quote. The rational mind is a faithful servant, and the intuitive mind is a divine gift. Was your teacher, in retrospect, do you think acting in fear simply of the unknown? Thirty kids in a class. I think at those times, you know, it's typically classes were between twenty-five and thirty kids, and um, you know, has or, or even a psychiatrist is trying, or a psychologist is trying to do their PhD, and and um, that is confronted with a child that um, you know does not fit in typically into the expected uh, scale of evolution of development of children or that doesn't fit into the educational system or that sees things in a completely different way. It's very difficult to manage. And, it, and typically, and this is one of the issue, and this is one of the issue I'm fighting against uh, so strongly in the physics world, is that our science... Uh, and our educational system in general is just not set up to have this type of flexibility. And the tendency is to uh, maintain status quo, to uh, go with certain sets of information that have been passed down, uh, in some cases for hundreds of years, uh, to assume that these sets of information are correct and that are complete and so on. And 
Um, and anything that falls outside of that is is marginalized, is uh, pushed aside, is is considered uh, inappropriate and, and you know anomalous, and 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 it's uh, it's sad because actually that goes directly against science and and against evolution because it's actually the pieces of the puzzle that that are not there the pieces that are outside of what we know that we have to explore these are the exciting things these are the things that we we should allow that we should encourage that that are educational system and research facilities and and universities should encourage uh, you know completely different point of views and and um and and explore and and uh, i think because there's a they, there might be some uh some confusion there but in some cases there may be a lot of truth there that could really propel humanity forward so so that flexibility has to be brought back in it has to be there we have to allow the children to give the gift that they're here to give you know allow people to to you know encourage creativity um instead of discourage it the way that you articulate this is that your childhood and education were almost in a dream state where you are receiving, for a better use of words, this miraculous inspiration so far away from the traditional academia model that we all understand. Would you agree with that synopsis? Yeah, absolutely. It it, it felt like a dream state and it, it you know, it, to me at the time it felt like a nightmare it felt like i was stuck in in uh in a world that didn't understand a thing of of um of who i was and, and the way i was communicating and 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 what i wanted to do and um but it definitely it was like a dream state and, and but there was a comforting part to this nightmare and that was my own field my own field of experience uh, it was homey it was uh it was you know soft and cuddly and it was uh, you know inside my bubble uh you know i was enjoying nature i was enjoying the world i was enjoying my experience but the relationship to the outside world was extremely difficult it does feel like a dream i remember that anatoly uh, france said to accomplish great things we must not only act but also dream not only plan but also believe it seems as if from a young age that you had a huge sense of perseverance in attaining that goal. Yes, I definitely, you know, was determined that, um, you know, I was going to help um, at least bring forward what I had understood, what I felt, what I felt at my deepest level to be true. And so I started very early on to, on that mission. Um, you know, there is recordings of me, I believe, when I was uh, uh, 12 or 13, where I was talking at conferences um, uh, uh, where, you know, there was panel talking about um, various parts of the cultures that 
don't fit in. And I was, uh, because my father was known and uh, a lot of people knew me, uh, you know, I, in some cases I would represent uh, the uh, misadapted children, the children that don't fit into the educational system on these panels. And I remember, you know, going into uh, long discussions with the with uh, you know large audiences about uh, our educational system and what must be done to to help the children bring their gifts and so on and so very early I was very determined to um, to bring this to the world to to uh, to open up uh, the window into the psyche of the child which is you know in education. Typically thought as um, as a blank slate that needs to be filled with information from the outside, and that's where I was very early on trying to. I talked to my father's students about it, and you know, uh, in many different uh, situations, I talked about it. As a, no, children are coming with a gift. They have their own mind. They have their own way of thinking. They they have something wonderful to give us, and um, you know, we need to do as much listening as we do uh, talking, meaning we have to listen to their experience and how they see things. There's, there's something very valuable they're bringing to us, and it's, so it's a two-way thing, and I really... I really wanted to bring that forward, and and uh, and in some ways I did. Um, since my father eventually started to uh, found schools in which children learn by uh, by um, projects, where you know the curriculum is is very much um, um, more based on the kids' experience, and the the kids have to. Uh, set up projects, and through doing their projects, they're learning to write and they're learning to read, and they become much more independent and they're much more creative and so on. So I think somewhere I got through, and and um, you know, and it helped. Uh, hopefully, it helped other children uh, eventually uh, through these schools. You refer to your father a great deal, Nasim, and. With many of my guests, and of course this is illustrated well during the Heroes series uh, with my colleague Dr. Susan Anthony out of England, where we take those who have travelled through life to a point where, as she terms it, to a breakdown, to a breakthrough scenario in evolving their consciousness. It, it, It almost appears that you may have eluded that stage being connected so deeply through nature but on top of that was your father almost a reference point during these days uh, as well um it, it was a my father relationship uh, was was a little bit um uh, difficult because my parents were separated from the age of 4 and um so my father, um, you know, I saw him on weekends, and um, you know, he's he wasn't so present in my life. Um, but yeah, in some ways, my pre- my father represented, you know, the academic world and um, a certain 
um, a certain way of uh, relating to the world, a very scientific way of relating to the world, and it was it was a good. Um, relationship in terms that it really helped me to understand how you have to articulate things in the academic world in order for the uh, for the um, researchers to understand you and to interact with you and so very early on my vo- vocabulary in terms of for instance child psychology and education and all this was very elaborate so uh, I was able to discuss these things with uh, with my father's students or the other professors at the University of Montreal in education and so on and actually you know get my points through um, and 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 interact with this. So so yeah, my father was a reference in terms of um, of the academic world and and the world that really has power on what goes on in our society today. With all that said, and in that I I don't like using this word in my work, but compromise certainly comes to mind. In that it's apparent where you are so close to somebody and yet battling with the establishment and its many faults where indeed uh, so many scientists today have been crucified uh, for their work did you see it as compromise or did you always stay firm with your beliefs um yeah, I, I think I never did, um, and, and that's because I choose a path that, um, in which I could remain uh, authentic to my beliefs, authentic to my experience. Uh, you know, I did not study in the context of uh, large institutions. Uh, I studied independently all of the physics I've done, some 20 um you know, some 25 years at this point, you know, of, of uh, intense studies, uh, and, but completely independently. I financed it completely independently so that I could retain that um, freshness, that I could retain that independent thinking uh, capability, um, and that I could, um, you know, come to my own conclusion with no pressure from anybody else. Um, and that I didn't have to uh, study things that uh, are not necessary for me to achieve my goals, so that shortened the amount of time uh, that I um, had to study to reach the level of knowledge I have in physics today. You know, many of the physicists that work on unified field theory at this point, certainly until recently, many of the physicists that work on these type of problems are in their 60s, their 70s, and some of them in their 80s, because it takes that long in physics to be able to learn enough physics to be able to address some of these issues. Many of these issues are very buried in the physics and extremely hard to understand. And so, uh, you know, it, it takes that long in many cases because the um, the physicists that are inside the institution and inside the educational system have all sorts of other duties that um, take them away from their research and so on. 
that I don't necessarily have, either than uh, the fact that I have other duties, and that is to maintain uh, financial viability, which can take some of my time. It takes quite a bit of my time right now, but um, but certainly I was able to move forward much more rapidly and keep a completely independent uh mind and and uh and uh and and you know be at ease with uh with my thought process this takes us to what i do personally in my life and it's a rather coarse but nevertheless um essential element i think and that is actually walking the talk Looking back yourself to those earlier days once more in nature, when you're firmly planted in nature, you are very conscious, certainly in balance, and I don't wish to put words in your mouth, of course, but living in harmony uh, with natural rhythms and, and those ancient truths. And that places you apart from those confined within the box, would you say? Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, being in nature, I think, should be a prerequisite um, for, you know, spending some time. You know, even uh, if you're doing sports in nature, you know, climbing or skiing or surfing or you know, swimming in the ocean, you know, but spending time uh, out uh, in the world, in the, the natural world, I, I, I believe should be a prerequisite for all scientists to, to actually, you know, experience, to, to go and contemplate, to go and meditate on uh, the experience of nature, on the dynamics of nature, on the patterns of nature. And I think there's so much insight there. And I think that actually most of the greatest thinkers, uh, of our times, um, you know, are people that spend some time um, in nature, that spend some time contemplating, uh, and and many of them talk about it, um, that those are the most important moments. Those are the moments where they had great illuminations, that they had great insight on the foundation of reality on um, whether it's physics or biology or or anything else uh, and um i think that should be absolutely uh necessary uh, i think that all all of our studies being done inside the box you know under neon lights uh, in the enclosed area very artificial areas uh, completely different from the natural world, uh, separated nature. I think this has been uh, one of the greatest uh, problem and tragedy of our time. Did you purposely, from a young age, decide not to be restricted within the system? I remember Joseph Campbell once said, is the system going to flatten you out and deny you your humanity, or are you going to be able to make use of it to the attainment of human purposes? Was the system something you saw clearly that you wished to avoid? 
Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, as soon as I could, I got out of the educational system. I think I was 16 uh, and um, or 17. No, I think 16. And I, uh, I right away, um, I was a good skier at the time. I started to work in the ski industry, so I could be in nature. I could be outside, and. Um, you know, um, I continued my exploration, uh, you know, more uh, independently, um, you know, looking at um, ice crystals, looking at, at snowflakes falling on my gloves as I go up the chairlift in my lessons, uh, you know, uh, looking at the geometry everywhere, stopping my classes uh, on those big snowflakes days where where all the sounds of, are the, uh, are dampened and and you can just ski in the in the in the woods and then stop the class and ask everybody to stay silent and listen to the silence and the beauty of that and you know I I explored it completely independently that way I, I definitely as soon as I could get out of the system I did before we move to the resonance project that you founded what was it that you were doing prior to that time that possibly encouraged you and inspired you with the establishment of this foundation um i was um so i was in the ski industry for many years um uh, from the age of 16 to uh almost uh 30, uh, in my 30s, um, and, you know, I went through the rankings of, uh, of the coaching and, and uh, ski instructor uh, structures in, in, in Canada and uh, became uh, very proficient and, and uh, became one of the top uh, ski instructor and coach in Canada. Um, I was uh, very successful in that way. It was a long journey. It was very difficult. Uh, you know, skiing is a, is um, demands a lot of technique, a lot of analysis. Uh, dancing with gravity is a very, very can be very challenging in some circumstances. And um, you know, I um, I enjoyed a lot of it, and it taught me very, very important lessons. It taught me a lot about nature, but as well, it taught me very important lessons, such as uh, self-discipline, you know, um, uh, the the intensity you must have in order to succeed, uh, you, you know, the the dedication you must have if you want to excel, if you want to become one of the best. Uh, you know, all these things were very important lessons earlier on in my life. And I learned that through the sport industry. I, I became a scuba diver instructor as well, where we, I, uh, I brought people in, in uh, great depth uh, in Key West, Florida for for a, a period of time, and uh, I became a, a climb, uh, a climbing guide, and I taught climbing and backcountry and and all this, and so um, again a lot of time in nature, but as well learning very important lessons, and all the way through this. Uh, in the background, continuing my exploration of the structure of reality, uh, this fundamental geometric, this fundamental 
patterning that I could see everywhere in nature. And, uh, you know, exploring that in the background in my free time uh, until it became so overwhelming. It became so exciting, uh, so important that I could not ignore it anymore. And uh, I had to make it a full-time job. Looking back then on that, which perhaps was a necessity, a necessary part of the journey, because you almost fell into that having become disillusioned with the scientific community, if I can put it that way, and therefore deciding to look at yourself in a far deeper way to find yourself before you could continue with your real passion, perhaps? Yes, I I felt like, um, um, you know, it was important for me to stabilize, to, yeah, exactly, to find myself, to... Um, to learn fundamental lessons I needed to learn in order to really um, take on this problem of science. I knew it was going to show up. I knew, I didn't know how, I didn't know when, I, I, but I, in, inside me from very early on, I knew that I had something to deliver. I had to, I had to bring this to the world, uh, that the, the view I was exploring inside of me, I had to somehow get it out of me. I had to bring it to the people. And, uh, and that started um, early on, but not uh, at a rapid pace, not at a full-time pace until I hung my skis and uh, retired from the ski industry and uh, climbing industry and um, you know, started to explore uh, physics and uh, the nature of reality at a, you know, in a full-time fashion, which was very challenging. On to the residence project and the foundation. And as in your manual, it talks to the unification of all sciences and philosophies. At the outset, Nassim, were you aware of crossing those borders in truly bringing those elements together across these communities? Yes. Um, you know, I, I, as I explored this throughout the years, very early on, uh, I realized that, um, you know, for all um, discovery of science that are significant, you know, there is a person behind it. There is, or a group of people behind it that have, that had, uh, you know, a moment of illumination, a thought, or a moment of creativity. Um, you know, and that you know, so that actually, if we want to do something significant in science, you know, explore the first, uh, the first spark. The first moment of initiation of a whole journey into a field of of, a, of investigation is always philosophy. It's always an insight that somebody. It's an internal 
experience. Uh, and, and many of the greatest talk about that. Uh, and so for me, it was clear from the beginning because I, I was kind of wired that way. I, from, I was ex- internalizing the external world and experiencing it and so on. And so for me, philosophy really is the basis of any good science. That is, it's not separated. Uh, and really, I'm always puzzled about the fact that philosophy is taught is taught in in schools and universities. Uh, you know, to me, philosophy is nothing that can be taught. It's something that can be experienced. You can teach history of philosophy, meaning you can teach what others had illuminations on or or experiences or or their interpretation. You can teach that. But really, philosophy comes from an internal experience of the universe, an internal interpretation of the world. And, and it is the, from that foundation that I believe all good uh, advanced physics, science, biology, any of the scientific investigation should come from. And it should be encouraged. And, and it's not really that way in our current educational system. And in fact, you know, in physics, um, in many cases, the, the idea, you know, insights or, or intuitive sense and so on are usually poo-pooed. They're, they're not allowed. They're, you know, they're discouraged. Yet those are the very important creative moments that has made most of the science we have today. That is a difficult subject is it not because people may have difficulty in teaching it because philosophy is about wisdom essentially which is left out in the system to my mind and you seem to seek what the creation and universe is all about And I think that much of that begins in philosophical thought and, of course, finding one's own wisdom before you can seek these greater plans. Exactly. And so, I, you know, I dream of the day where philosophy is taught by by, um, helping uh, students uh, to, to have deep experience of their of their psyche deep, you know, maybe through peak experience uh, in uh, in the natural world, maybe doing some sports or, or peak experience in meditative states or, you know, all sorts of modality could be uh, uh, made uh, available to, to students and, and to help them really gain that wisdom that you're talking about to to link into their own wisdom into their own deep sense of knowing and uh and that's there it's prominent it's prevalent and and you know it is part of why i very early on believed that all knowledge is available to all people for instance early on i used to debate with um students of my father, that IQ doesn't exist, that the concept that some person is more intelligent than another and so on doesn't exist, that, you know, all children are born 
uh, geniuses, brilliant, um, but that there's all sorts of events that can separate us from our own internal wisdom, and, and, and that is actually what we're measuring uh, when we're measuring IQ, is how much trauma has been, um, you know, availing our capacity to link with our own uh, center, with our own deeper knowing. This in closing out the first of our programs together is very much where I believe you are assuring us that we are all the center of the universe. And I think as each of us is indeed at the center of the universe, it makes all of us one. And that surely is part of that equation, Nassim, that you are speaking to. Absolutely. Uh, actually, you know, very early on, I felt that there must be some communication link between all things in order for things to self-organize. When you look at the natural world, it's highly complex, self-organized systems. I mean, it's not random at all. I mean, look at one human being. It's just an amazing miracle. Uh, in one human being, there's enough DNA that if I put it end-to-end, -end, I could wrap it around the world five million times. I mean, it's, it's insane the amount of uh, information available in order for the human body to, for instance, function, or even just for a blade of grass to be able to function, or, or, or you look at the interaction of all the animals and all the, the vegetation in nature and all the microbial life and everything. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And for me, it was clear that this could not be the result of random functions. And, uh, you know, and as I explored physics later on, I, you know, I realized that mathematically it doesn't add up neither. You can't, you can't get this level of complexity, um, you know, by random function, even in 14 or 13.7 billion years since the Big Bang, if there was such a thing. You know, it just, the, the concept is similar to thinking that you can take all the pieces of a Boeing 747 uh, into the smallest piece that you can separate it as and, and throw them all up in the air and that when they land by some miracle, uh, you know, uh, that all the pieces will land and produce a plane that you can fly. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And so for me, it was clear from very, very early on that there must be some fundamental relationship between all things. There must be a linkage. There must be a field that connects all things, that makes everything uh, aware of everything else, meaning that in each point there must be the information of all other things so that everything can self-organize. And, you know, I start to explore that idea. I start to explore the idea that space, the space between things, is actually not empty, but that it's full. And, and eventually I realized that in quantum theory, that had been found, but it had been pushed aside, meaning that they had, when they looked at the space inside the atom, it, it was infinitely 
dance in energy um, and uh, in fluctuation. It's called vacuum fluctuations. And and uh, I realized, oh, this might be what I'm looking for. This might be the field of information that's present that connects all things. Because if, if you say we're all one, then you have to say, how is that possible? And if you think about it, is there something that connects all things? The only thing you can find is that space is everywhere. The atom is 99.99999% space. There's space between atoms. There's space between planets, between suns, between galaxies. There's space everywhere. And so if the space is not empty, then it came to me that maybe space is the connecting factor, is the connecting field, that maybe matter is just a, an effect of the space itself. And that really brought me to a whole new way of looking at physics. And on that note of space and the many theories that you are involved in, it is where we will continue in our second program together. It's been an enormous pleasure, Nassim, to spend this time with you. And I hope so much that you have yourself enjoyed this conversation as much as I. I have. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to the next one. And for our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have with Nassim Haramein. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series on In Discussion at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons In Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.